If you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's bow for prayer. Father, as always, we are grateful. We just want to, to remain in the state of being thankful, Lord, because we know that it's the the right and the proper attitude that we should have and when it comes to approaching life and approaching worship of you. And fathers, we have committed this portion of our service to uh, the reading and the teaching of your word. We ask that you would give us clarity of speech as well as clarity of thought. We ask again, Lord, that you help us not only to be able to grasp the truth that is here, but the Father, your spirit would use it in our lives to continue to mold us and to shape us so that we would become more like Jesus Christ, become more like Christ in our attitudes our attitudes towards circumstances, our attitudes towards others, that, Father, we would be filled with the wisdom of God, that, Father, we may speak your truth wherever we go, that we may be truly through and through Christian in the way we live life and really in the way that we enjoy life as well, that, Father, again, others would speak well of you because your power is evident in us. So we thank you. Again, ask that you help us as we seek to grasp and understand your word. But you ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 16, Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we spent last week talking a little bit about where, where Paul says that we didn't lose heart and why we didn't lose heart and the attitude that we are to have. We're going to continue as he gets into the reasons why he is uh, stating that, how, how it is, what's motivating him uh, to be able to uh, maintain that attitude himself, what it is that strengthens him. And encourages him to be able to do that. Again, verse 17, in a more literal reading, would be this. For our temporary lightness of affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that is out of all proportion. So remember, that, again, the context of all of this. Paul, again, has been defending his ministry and has explained the multiple and variegated afflictions that he's endured. And again, he's not doing that to make them feel sorry for him. It's just that he is so focused on the ministry and the message of Christ that he wants to, I believe, reveal how he is consumed with this message and the glory of God. And he wants him to see the contrast between his attitude, his approach, and those who are trying to undermine him that had infiltrated the church, that they were really in it all about themselves. And he, and he, so he's not just kind of saying, well, this is, this is what they're doing. Look how awful they are. They're all, he, he doesn't really get into that. He, he wants to get into what he's doing or what he's saying and what he's pointing to. So again, he says, and he, I, he says this because of the, the ability given to him by the, by the Holy Spirit, that he looks at all of his difficulty, not only the, uh, the ones who are kind of putting him down, but a lot of the, the torture that he suffered, uh, he suffered in a lot of ways. They were very familiar with that. But he still says that it's momentary and light. 
And we need to remember that Paul is not just using that as rhetoric. Paul is not just kind of stating that because it sounds good and because it looks good. Paul has truly suffered greatly. And this is his attitude. He's not in denial that, it, that these things have been horrendous. And as we know, when he's come close to losing his life, he's not in denial or somehow pretending that that has been just a, that's really not a big deal or intentionally denying that these things are horrible. He wants to know that, that all those things have happened, but his view of them is a view they can have as well, the perspective that he has. He wants them to have that. He wants them to be strengthened. So he's not using this as a way to brag about himself and see how great I am. I look at these things, and to me, they're light. They're nothing. That's not what he's doing here. Again, he mentions in this that this affliction is preparing or producing in us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison. The word there is producing or is preparing. In the Greek text, it is in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing process. So our earthly afflictions, and what he's talking about there, this is not those things that are the consequences of sin. So when, when we sin and do wrong and we reap the consequences of that, and that can come in the form of what we might call afflictions, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the afflictions in life primarily would be those difficulties that we encounter because we are Christians, because we have embraced the gospel. So again, these are not afflictions of the consequences of our sin. But he says that these earthly afflictions are always working out our heavenly glory. So we need to kind of grasp, what does he really mean by that? What is he saying? In other words, the one thing he's not saying is the glory that he speaks of here, that is not compensation. God is not saying, well, I'm now going to compensate you uh, in heaven with glory because you've suffered all these things. So we're not earning uh, that glory in that sense. But he does want us to know that the future glory does, in a way, grow out of the present suffering for his namesake. There is, for I guess lack of a better way to put it, an organic relation between our present affliction, which would be like, I guess, the seed, and future glory, which is the fruit, for everyone who endures to the end. More specifically, the word preparing or the word producing. Uh, the Greek word is uh, katagazomai. I think I'm saying it correctly. Uh, the first part of that word, kata, K-A-T-A, uh, it is intensifying the verb. The verb is uh, ergozomai, which means to labor or to work or engage in an activity that involves the expenditure of great effort. So the word then means to work out fully or to work out thoroughly, to accomplish or achieve an end. It means to finish or carry something to its conclusion. It is to work to bring something to successful completion. So the Greek word then always means to complete the effort and the work that was begun. So Paul is saying then that God is not going to stop halfway in producing this glory, but in fact is going to go beyond our human expectations. Look at Philippians 1 verse 6 for just a moment. Just flip over there and, and uh, it reads this way. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In the New American Standard, it reads, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So affliction, again, going back to that, 
Affliction per se does not earn future glory, but God allows affliction to enter our lives, and through these afflictions, he produces eternal glory. The more we suffer in this life, the greater will be our capacity for glory in heaven. Stated another way, we would say it this way, the spiritual quality of your earthly life, the spiritual quality of my earthly life, will in some divinely determined way affect the quality of our heavenly life. So we begin by asking this question. What is success? What is the true aim in life? What should we take as the goal of our, of our living and all of our striving? Views of life do differ widely. Many think that we are in this world to make a career for ourselves. They may set out with some great vision of success in their mind. They devote their life to the realizing of that vision. If they fail, they suppose they have failed in life. If they achieve their dream, they consider themselves and are often considered by others as successful. In the end, I would say that the world has no other standard of success. Whether it's amassing wealth, gaining power, whether it's gaining power politically or corporately or in whatever way, it might be the triumph of a certain skill. Maybe it's a genius in art or literature or music. But whatever the definite object may be, it is purely an <coughs> earthly ambition. So if that is the standard that we're going to use, if we apply that standard to life, then only a very few people are successful. Great men and women are very rare. Only a few win the high places. The rest, the masses, we lay low in the valley. Only a few win honor. Only a few rise into fame and achieve distinction. While the great multitude remain in obscurity or go down to the dust of earthly defeat. If you just think about, if you look at sports, and they talk, you know, I'm not really into basketball. Um, but if you, if, you're, if you like basketball, you know, when they talk about who's the greatest basketball player of all time. It's not a list of 50 people. And it's not a list of 20. Some have a list of four. Most have a list of two. Two individuals that they might say would be the greatest basketball player of all time. Which I guess means everyone else has failed. Everyone else is a loser. Some will say, well, you know, if, if a guy just makes an NBA team, or if he just makes an NFL team, He's pretty good. But even when it comes to those things, when they talk about some, you know, the flashy position, the quarterback, and how great they are, what do people now say? You know, they talk, if you know anything about football, you know who Dan Marino is. Dan Marino was considered by many people to be a great quarterback. But somebody will always say this, yeah, but he didn't win any Super Bowls. So what does that mean? I guess that means he's a loser. Right, even though it's not only up to the quarterback to win, you know, it, it is a team sport, you know, that kind of thing. That's, that's how people measure it. When it comes to those who are wealthy, you know, some people may be wealthy and say, yeah, but he's, he's no Bill Gates. Um, okay. Uh, of course, now I guess that's an old name. Now it's the other guys, you know, the guy that owns Amazon, Bezos, and some of the other individuals. But, you know, and I've seen the illustrations of how much money they have. And it's just, you can't even really fathom uh, 
Uh, but think of it this way, if you had the ability to spend a million dollars cash every day for the rest of your life, it would not equal the wealth that Bezos has. And that doesn't matter how old you are. So if you're 10 and you spend a million dollars a day, you still wouldn't equal what he has. That's, I, don't know how, I don't know how to understand that. And so when it comes to that, if that's the standard, most people are failures. And so I think as a result of that's why we sometimes get into this thing that we know where everybody's a winner. Well, they're not. <laughs> you know, it's, everybody's not a winner. No matter, how you defer, how, no matter how you define winning, it doesn't happen. And of course, what takes place and what many people worry about, or I guess we can see, is that because only a few, in a sense, win at life, depending on how you define it, you have a lot of individuals who feel that they have no reason to live or their life is a, a failure and then there's the things that go along with that whether it's depression or whatever you know low self-esteem and just go on and on about all that kind of stuff uh, and so we have to ask ourselves the question is that the only standard of success in life does everyone except for a few who win prizes really fail is there is there no other kind of success according to the world there's no comfort there's, there's no real answer. In fact, even when it comes to philosophizing and trying to say that, oh, well, you know, every, the safe, everyone in their own way is a winner. Well, what does that mean? It's like the guy who's a legend in his own mind, right? That's, that's, that's made up, right? And so we, we want something that's much more tangible than that. Well, what Paul is telling us here, that there is another sphere. There is a life in which success is not material. It's spiritual. And that's not just jibber-jabber. That's not just trying to find a way to make us feel better about ourselves. He's very serious about this. You may utterly fail as far as the world is concerned. But in the invisible realm, and again, the world's not going to get that. You know, like, what, in the invisible realm? What are you talking about? But in the invisible realm, in the spiritual realm, you, we, we can be a winner. And, and, but again, even when it comes to that, we're not winners because we exert the greatest effort. We're not winners because we've discovered the secret or we have you know, spiritual knowledge no one else has, or at least that's not available to them. That's nah, because we're in God's kingdom because of his goodness and his grace. I have a relationship because of him. I have salvation because of him. There was a college student came across this. I thought it was pretty funny. She wrote a letter to her parents. So I'm going to read the letter that she wrote to her parents. She says, Dear Mom and Dad, I have so much to tell you. Because of the fire in my room, set off by rioting stu students, I suffered lung damage and had to go to the hospital. While I was there, I fell in love with an orderly. Then I got arrested for my part in the riots. Anyway, I'm dropping out of school, getting married, and moving to Alaska. Your loving daughter. Then she says, P.S., None of those things really happened. I did flunk a chemistry class, and I wanted you to keep it in perspective. <laughs> so, so, and then that's really what Paul's getting at is perspective. It, it is a way of looking at life. But again, the lens through which we're looking at life through, it's reality. It's, again, it's not just stuff that's made up. It's not just some kind of smoke to make us feel better, but there's nothing really there. There's a lot there. 
If your children, let's say one or more of your children come home from school and they're young, and let's say that their feelings have truly been deeply hurt in school. They feel rejected and betrayed by maybe a good friend or maybe a group of friends. And and we want to comfort them. And, And we start talking to them about how much mom and dad love them and how our family loves them. We do believe, at least I hope you do, that there's substance to that. That, that that really does ground them in reality. That the world, you don't live your life based on the fickle assessments of strangers who don't know you. That this is, this, this is able to get you through life. You know who you are because you belong to this family. And no matter what you do, we love you. And that there's actually a good number of people that love them. Their grandparents and their aunts and their uncles, that they are on their side and they love them. We're not just trying to, we are trying to boost them up, but not in a false way. You know, this isn't like, well, I know that your team really stinks and they came in last place out of 40 teams, so they're really horrific, but you got a trophy. All right, that's not where this is. There's, there's real substance to this. And we want them to feel encouraged. And we want them to feel encouraged not just for a few moments until they somehow get over it. No, we want that to be foundational to their life. And there's many individuals who will talk about it. You know, you hear athletes, and I know sometimes it sounds like everyone's just repeating themselves, but I think they're repeating what they hear others say because there's substance to it. Where an individual is maybe given some high award and they begin to thank other people that they recognize were foundational in their life to get them to where they are. And so normally, uh, what you hear individuals talk about, either um, their parents or grandparents, depending on who raised them and how close they were. Maybe there was a coach or a teacher, but there are certain individuals that you know, we would say they believed in them or they supported them or they helped them and that kind of thing. And so even though a lot of that's always repeated, you kind of already know what someone's going to say you know, when there's an acceptance speech. We, we want to believe that what they're saying is, is true and real. I will tell you that there was a particular NBA player that was drafted out of high school. So he was only 18 years old, so he gets a pass. But let me tell you what he said. He was asked the question, and this was, they were trying to help him out. Is there anyone you would like to thank for the fact that you are one of the youngest individuals ever to be drafted in the, in the NBA? And I, I don't know if he went number one or... It was first round, and he, he said, yes, I, I think to begin with, I, I need to thank myself. <laughs> Most everybody thought, well, that's not a good answer. <laughs> that sounds really egotistical, and, you know, I mean, you could at least say you thank your mom, you know, because everybody does that, uh, and I don't know, but maybe he just kind of froze, stuff like that happens. All right, but, but when someone says they want to thank themselves, we, we kind of... Uh, Think something's up there. So we want to make sure that we have the proper perspective. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. Proper perspective is essential for getting through life when it comes to these afflictions that Paul and the Word of God tells us is going to happen in our life. We need to have the right perspective. But again, this is not a perspective that's just based on some empty philosophy. This is not just, you know, positive thinking. You know, this is not where you go hear, you know, a motivational speaker and you can feel all motivated for about three days and then, 
you know, later on when you have under the thousand dollars, you can pay some and they can really get you going again or spend a hundred bucks and get the tape and listen to it over and over again. Proper perspective is not the same as diminishing the gravity of our suffering. It is not saying that it's not a big deal and that you're not really hurting, but we do have a decision to make. I want to read to you something that was written by A.W. Pink. A.W. Pink's known for a lot of different things, but this is, and a lot of it's good, but this is, I thought was great. That's what he says. Afflictions, in and of themselves, are not light. They are heavy and grievous. But they are light comparatively. They are light when compared with what we really deserve. Light when compared with the sufferings of Jesus. But perhaps their lightness is best seen by comparing them to the glory that is awaiting us. As Paul said in another place, Romans chapter 8, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The word for reckon there is the verb logozomai, which means to put together with one's mind or to count, to occupy oneself with reckonings or calculations. So the idea is that Paul is thinking about and putting together the truth of what God has said and what Christ has done for us. And when he puts all these things together, what we're going through compared to that is light. And what we're going to receive, it's, it's light. It's not as heavy as it feels. The present is influencing the future. It is not for us to reason and philosophize about this, but to take God at his word and believe it. So there's another aspect when we talk about living by faith. Living by faith means that no matter what afflictions you and I are going through, we purposely think in the sense of comparing it to the glory that we're going to inherit, the glory that would be ours. And when we do that, the affliction we go through is lightened. We are better able to endure it and to handle it because we know what's coming. That's the deal. In a humanistic kind of way, because it's very difficult, I think, at times for us to talk about some of the things that Christ endured for us because it was so phenomenal and spectacular. We're not trying to say that somehow we're like Christ in the sense of being just like him. But we know that when Jesus Christ was facing the crucifixion, remember that he was not playing a part in a movie where he was pretending to suffer. He experienced everything any human being would experience when crucified. Many individuals have said through the years that it is the singular worst form of death that exists because of all the pain that the body goes through. That the Romans continued to tweak it through the years so the suffering would be intensified. That it would normally take individuals three or four days to die. The, that the way of death really is a form of suffocation because the internal organs in your body begin to sink down in the diaphragm. And so the only way you can breathe, because the natural instinct is you want to live, is to pull yourself up to get this deep breath. And so eventually what happens is you become physically exhausted to where you are literally unable to do that. 
Remember, we've said before that uh, at times the Roman soldiers would cut out the tongue of the individual who's been crucified. The only reason they did that was because some individuals who understood what was going to happen would swallow their tongue to die right away. And the Romans weren't going to have that. They were going to make sure you felt all of it. When Jesus was facing that and when he endured that, he endured all of that for us. But we also know this, that he knew it didn't end with that. He knew that he was going to die from that. But he knew he was going to rise again from the dead. He knew that what he was going through and that his resurrection from the dead was going to bring about the redemption of millions and millions of people to the glory of God his Father. That did definitely help him, enable him to face what he went through. We would never say that it was light, though it was momentary, though it felt eternal. But that definitely was a part of that. We then, whatever it is that we are facing, it never means, we want to make sure we understand this, we're never diminishing the very real pain and grief that we go through. We're not saying that it's nothing. But what we are saying is compared to what it's going to be one day, this is light. So if I get tragic news that one of my children has died, or one of my grandchildren has died, that would affect me very deeply emotionally. There would be great sadness in my life. I can't even think about it without tearing up. It's kind of a weird thing when you get older. All right? But I don't even like to think about it. Right? It's, 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 it's overpowering in every way. But I know this. It's not the end of things. It's, it's, it's not a, that big of a deal. It's a big deal, but it's not. There's no despair. Because I know God keeps his promises. I know what he said. All of my marbles are in one basket. And it's the only basket I think we want to put our marbles in. It's the only one that I believe makes sense. It's the only one that's true. That's what Paul is getting at. Experience feelings, observations of others seems to deny the fact. Afflictions often appear to only sour us, to make us more rebellious and discontented. But we need to remember that afflictions are not sent by God for the purpose of purifying the flesh. They are designed for the benefit of the new man. Sometimes we may suffer the consequences of our sin as God does the work of sanctification in our lives. But there's a great deal of affliction that comes our way that is not sent by God to purify your flesh. We have been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. I've been declared righteous. I've been declared justified by God. So I don't have to be, I don't, that's why we don't believe in purgatory. A, the Bible doesn't teach purgatory. There's no concept of purgatory in the Bible. We know that when we become believers, we are completely 100% saved at that moment. And at any moment after that fact, when we die, we are with the Lord. That's it. Even if you die in the middle of committing sin. We're not trying to be blasphemous here. It's not that any of us attempt to do that. But we do know it's possible. More than one person has had a heart attack and died in the middle of cussing someone out. If they were a true believer, they're with the Lord. 
And, and, that's, and the scripture, I believe, clearly teaches that. It makes some people kind of nervous. You know, like we're giving permission to go do that. I'm not giving you permission to do any of that. But you and I are human beings, and we do stuff like that. And we regret it. So the afflictions are not sent by God for the purpose of purifying the flesh. Moreover, the afflictions prepare us for the glory that's coming. Affliction draws away our hearts from the love of the world. Affliction makes us long more for the time when we shall be translated from this scene of sin and sorrow. Afflictions will enable us to appreciate, by way of contrast, the things that God has prepared for us that love him. So here is what faith is invited to do. It is to place on one scale the present affliction, and on the other, eternal glory. Are they even worthy to be compared? Is the discussion not even worth having? One second of glory will more than counterbalance a whole lifetime of suffering. I know that to be true because that's what the scripture teaches. I've not experienced that yet, and neither have you. Years of toil, of sickness, of battling against poverty, of, of persecution, even a martyr's death, when weighed over against the pleasure at God's right hand, that if forevermore, there's no comparison. One individual said, one breath of paradise will extinguish all the adverse winds of earth. One day in the Father's house will more than balance the years we have spent in this dreary wilderness. May God grant us faith that will enable us to anticipate and lay hold of the future and live in the present enjoyment of it. We know in the earthly sense of those stories of individuals who have perhaps gone through great sufferings. We hear of individuals who are in other countries desperately trying to escape to come to, to America. In their mind, America is the dream. There's freedom. People aren't hunting you down. Most of them understand we have issues, but the issues we have is nothing compared to what they're going through. Absolutely nothing. That's why they're trying so desperately to get here, regardless of the situation. And those individuals who make it here, whether it's legal or not legal, because we're not dealing with that issue, but they get here and they begin to live in, and enjoy the freedom that we have. The freedom you have to go right down here, take you 30 seconds to go to Kroger, and to walk in there and look at just the produce section. There are countries that they've never, they, to them, that's fake. They can't even imagine that. And, that, and we say, and we go into Kroger sometimes say, this one doesn't have anything. I got to go over to Publix now or whatever. Right? Their perspective is very different. But the bottom line is when they've lived here for a while, it does, in time, begin to diminish all the pain and suffering they went through before. Many of them will say, oh, it's, it was worth every agonizing step to get here. When I put my children in bed at night and they can sleep in a comfortable bed, and I know that they can go to school tomorrow on a full stomach. And, and I know that, that I will go to work tomorrow. And they can start going through all these things. They'll say, it's worth it. I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about my children being gunned down. I don't have to look up my window and see soldiers patrolling the streets with their automatic weapons. And they can go on and on about all these things. I don't have to worry if my, if my money is even safe in the bank. And again, we're not saying anything in our country is perfect and will always be here because things are going to happen in just a minute. But the bottom line is this, is that when those individuals experience living here, whatever they went through before just continues to diminish and get smaller and smaller. 
And that is nothing compared to the differences between the way we live our lives now here or in any country and what we receive when the Lord returns. And again, that's the perspective that we have. That is the perspective that we need to adopt. It doesn't, it doesn't just come naturally. We ask God to give that to us, and we ask God to give that to us as we read his word, and that then really grows in us. An understanding of reality. Because again, that's what it is. It's real. It's going to happen. I just have not yet experienced it yet. I, you know, it's like going to Disney World. Little kids may think it's unbelievable. Mom and dad know it's real when they go down there and pay 60 bucks for parking. They go, now it begins, right? And then they go up to the gate and they, they were thinking that it was $75 a person and the next thing you know, nope, it's 110 or whatever it is now. And they're looking at their checking account and there are three kids and the wife, mama can't go in. <laughs> But that's not going to happen. And, and, and again, that, you know, all the greatness that may bring them for a, just a moment in time is nothing compared to what we're going to receive in Christ. But again, remember, we can never earn that. As believers, you know, it's a gift. It's been given to us by the goodness and graciousness of Christ. And we need to enjoy that. But that then gives us a strength to endure the suffering that probably all of us are going to go through. All kinds of suffering, some more, some less, but it is a life of affliction. We're not being pessimistic, we're being realist. But we know that God said He would never leave us alone. And He strengthens us not only with His presence, but with this perspective that we have based on the truth of what He's accomplished for us. And we're just waiting for the day to receive it. And so I want you to be encouraged. As we've mentioned before, Regardless of what our country is going through, regardless if you believe it's going to get much, much worse, regardless if it does get worse, even by tomorrow, if, if the, the tide turns against us as believers and there's more laws enacted, vengeance against what we believe, what we hold to be true, especially when it comes to morals, we are able to endure that light and momentary affliction. Regardless of what it means, because of the future glory that God has for us. And we can bank on that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this perspective that you not only offer us, but Lord, one that is based on the reality and the truth and the foundation of the word of God. That is based on the life, death, resurrection, and the return of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for that. We pray, Lord, that we will live our lives with a great desire to be greatly influenced by your word. We want our minds to be transformed so that, Father, we think your thoughts after you. So that, Father, these are not just empty words that we recite to give ourselves a pep talk to get us through the difficult times. But, Lord, even to get us through the times when we're pouring out our heart to you in tears, but there will still be a strength that is there that comes from you, that comes from, again, what you've done for us, and the right and the proper perspective, the way we are to view and to understand life and afflictions. We ask, Lord, that you would give to us this strength that we need. We pray, Lord, because we know that the only way this strength can be displayed to others is by our enduring affliction. We pray that we will not fail, 
We ask that you will enable us to deal with life in a way that is proper so that others may see your strength in us. We ask, Lord, if it be your will, that they would inquire of us. Ask how it is we can face life and face another day. We ask, Lord, you would give us the wisdom, the ability to speak the words that is because of Christ and the very real things that he has done for us and the very real things that he will do for us. And that is why we are strengthened and able to endure and persevere. Father, we need this. Maybe we need this more because we've suffered so little and we're not really ready yet, as many others may be. But for whatever the reason, Father, we ask that you would strengthen our faith. And Father, for those who may not know Christ, Lord, I would imagine if they think about the world and the way the world is and the way the world is going, there can be a lot of fear. I pray, Lord, that they would think a lot about what's causing that fear. Because it always has to do with the future. When am I going to die? What will happen when I die? What's going to happen to my stuff? How am I going to die? Will I suffer? I pray, Lord, they would think about those things and realize that they don't have an answer. I pray that even for a, a moment, their fear might even be intensified. Not, Lord, that they would just panic. Not, Lord, so that they would lose their mind. But, Lord, so they would seek you and seek the truth that you've given us. Thank you, Father, for giving us the way and showing us the way. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.